to the Thy Neighbor podcast, conversations with everyday people who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. I am your host and occasional solo caster, Tracy Robbins King. If you are inspired by this episode and someone comes to mind as you listen, share this with that person. If you have benefited from the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. Your ratings, reviews, and shares make a difference and allow this podcast to reach more remarkable people like you. Heather Christensen and I met at BYU-Idaho in Rexburg, Idaho. Yes, we are some of the Frozen Chosen, and I am so excited for everyone to learn from and listen to Heather's story. Let's begin with becoming paralyzed. How did that happen and when did that happen? Okay, so it wasn't a full paralysis, but when I was pregnant with my second child, we had just moved to Missouri. So we were in a new ward, new place, didn't know a lot of people. And I started having some really serious complications in my pregnancy. So much so that I ended up on bed rest for six months of that pregnancy. So you're new to a new town. You don't really know anybody. We didn't know why I was having the troubles I was having. And obviously when you're pregnant, they usually say, we're not going to do any tests or anything because we don't want to risk harming the baby. And so that first year in Missouri, I spent most of my time on bed rest. I had a two-year-old as well. And just a lot of strange complications, issues. My husband had just started medical school. We were going through this process and um, my doctor decided that I needed to be induced a little bit early and it happened to be finals day of med school. So on finals day, it usually takes about eight hours to go through an exam and they were going to induce me. And so my husband told the proctor, look, my wife's being induced. So they graciously let him go to a room to take his test on his own. And he had to complete an eight hour exam in four hours because our baby was coming. (laughs) And so he made it with about 20 minutes to spare to our second son's birth and a lot of strange complications, issues. We didn't really know what was going on. Everything went fine with the birth, but about a week after he was born, I lost complete control of my bladder. I couldn't empty my bladder anymore, which was very frustrating and difficult. And I was losing the ability to walk. We didn't really know why. It was mostly my left leg. I just walked and fall over unexpectedly. Didn't know why. So We went to a couple different doctors trying to figure out what the problems were, trying to resolve issues during pregnancy. And one day we met with a doctor and she said, do you have spinal cord injury? I don't, I've never injured my spinal cord. I, you know, injured my tailbone as a kid once, not a big deal. We ordered an MRI and found out that I had a tumor in my spinal cord. I was born with spina bifida and had absolutely no idea. And so the tumor was associated with spina bifida. Instead of my body leaking out spinal fluid when I was born, it put in this lipoma. And with pregnancies and everything that went on, it changed somehow in my body and made the tumor start to grow and paralyze me. So that's how we found out about all of that. And that's what cascaded this entire process was that pregnancy. And though this does seem like a huge statement, like a huge ask on this question. What did you learn in the process? Because one of the things that you mentioned in that story was when you got to a new city and you were on bed rest with a two-year-old, how did you manage that? Um, you know, there were a lot of blessings along the way. My husband's always been a very hands-on father. And so, um, he came and gave us a lot of support 
I had to have a, a surgery about three months after my second son was born to detether my spinal cord. So they went in and removed the scar tissue. And um, that was about an eight week recovery. And so my mother-in-law decided she was going to come out and spend eight weeks with us while we got through that recovery and transition. About six weeks in, my stitching broke in my spine and I started leaking spinal fluid. And so we had to do emergency surgery. And that one, I wasn't allowed to move or bend at all at the waist for about four months. I had to lay completely flat on my stomach for those four months. And so my mother-in-law ended up staying for nearly six months, taking care of our children. My husband would come home from med school every three hours to kind of help me get up for a few minutes. I couldn't do anything on my own. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't shower. I couldn't do anything. I just laid on my stomach all day, every day. And my mother-in-law took care of the kids. She helped make meals. I laid there bored out of my mind and my husband's at med school trying to learn as much as he can, support his family. Everybody in my life was busy and I was there alone, kind of stuck, just waiting. Um, You know, spinal surgery is very, very, very difficult. It damages your nerves every time they go in, they cut something out and um, it creates a lot of damage. And so you can only do those so many times before it causes permanent paralysis. And so I didn't want to risk another spinal surgery. I'd had two within six weeks. And typically they take three to five years to recover from. So it was a really big ask already to have to go in and do a repair surgery so quickly after the first one. I did have help from family, but there's still that feeling of loneliness. You're new, nobody really knows you. And so a lot of time spent alone, a lot of time feeling very lonely. And I had wonderful support from my family, but there's still just that need to associate with people and to be interacting with others and to not have that. And say, I have this newborn baby and I didn't get told him for six months and to have my two-year-old and I don't get to interact with him and their lives are passing me by and I can't do anything. My mother-in-law would bring him in. They'd sit on the bed with me for a little bit, but it's hard to interact on your stomach. It just is, you know, so there were a lot of complications in that, but I think you learn a lot about yourself through those kinds of experiences. You learn your strengths. You definitely learn your weaknesses. You learn how impatient you can be about life and just going from being a completely healthy person, no complications to now having a degenerative chronic permanent condition to be disabled in a sense was really a hard thing. I never thought that I was going to be disabled or this was going to be a permanent thing. When we found out about it, it was like, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to take out this tumor and I'm going to heal and it will be done. And I didn't realize that it would take 10 surgeries so far to get me where I am, to keep me walking, to keep me functioning. And that those surgeries would have cascading effects in other areas of my life. And that just our entire lives would be flipped upside down by this chronic health problem that I didn't know I had. You know, most people know they have spina bifida from birth. I was the youngest of seven kids. It wasn't a time when they did routine ultrasounds. So we just didn't know growing up that that was going to be an issue. So I think just learning what it means to live with a chronic disability, what it means to not always have that healing that you want. There's the faith to be healed. And then there's the faith to endure. And I think that that was a big thing of learning that I'm not going to be healed in this life. And that that's okay. That life changes, life's difficult. You know, you just, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your savior. Something that I always felt like was One of the titles I love about the Savior is a man of sorrows. You know, here's this person who suffered so much and he understands me. And if we're trying to become like our Savior, how can we do that if we don't have sorrow, if we don't have trial, if we don't have things to struggle through? He struggled through so much. And so I guess it gives me a much more intimate and personal relationship with my Savior because 
I now know what it means to really suffer in a way that I hadn't before. You know, I'd, I'd always been healthy and you have kind of this, you're young, you're in your twenties, this sense that eventually you're going to suffer. Eventually you're going to get old. You're eventually going to face your own mortality, but to be 20 years old and facing my mortality a little bit and realizing to go in these surgeries, I may never walk again. I may never have the opportunity to do the things I hope to do. I might die in this surgery because they're messing with my central nervous system. It doesn't take a lot to cause permanent damage in that system. And so there were a lot of lessons that were learned through that process and that are still being learned because every day is a new challenge. And when you were on bed rest on your stomach for four months, I'm still thinking about that because so many of us take for granted our health, that we just have health. And what do you, what do you feel like you now don't take for granted that you did maybe before? You know, just the basic functions of the body when they work, it's awesome you don't really think about, wow, I'm really grateful that my bowels are functioning today, or I'm really grateful that, you know, my appendix is working or my gallbladder is working or this or that. And when you have those health troubles, you realize how difficult the basic things in life are when you can't do one thing. You know, I couldn't bend at the waist for four months. So how do you get to a doctor's appointment? Well, an ambulance has to pick you up and you have to take a ride on your stomach on a stretcher. They have to take you in and out. You can't walk because that requires bending at the hip. And they had to do a total reconstruction of my lower back because I was leaking spinal fluid and they were really worried about it. And so they took muscles and they reorganized and put them somewhere else and grafted in all these tissues and revascularized the whole lower back. It was a massive surgery. And so any pulling or any tension on those hips would really potentially risk another spinal fluid leak. And that was very painful. It's very dangerous. You can get infections, all sorts of problems. And so, you know, you just appreciate the tiny things that you can do for yourself when you can sit down for yourself, when you can tie your own shoes or you can, you know, shower for yourself, you can do anything for yourself. When you're stuck in that position of complete lack of mobility in your spine, the basic functions of life are difficult, you know? And so that was something that I don't think I take for granted as much. I still have struggles with that. There's a lot of significant nerve damage. And so you don't take for granted those healthy days when you feel great and you just want to do everything you can on those good days because you know the bad days are going to come inevitably and you have to take the time to let your body heal. And that's hard. I appreciate having things to do that are productive with my time. I spent so many months reading books and that's all I could do all day long that I don't like boredom. I hate being bored. I hate having nothing productive to do with my time because I spent so long with absolutely nothing to do. And just this feeling of guilt of my kids need me. I've got a newborn. I've got a two-year-old, a busy house. I need to support my husband while he's gaining his education. And I'm doing nothing. And I'm terribly bored all day long, but there's nothing I can do about it except be patient and wait. And I don't like to wait (laughs) that long. That's a long time to do nothing. So it gives you more compassion for people who don't have the prospect of ever changing their mobility to be stuck that way. That was really a big thing um, for me to try and find a sense of freedom in movement. I love that. And so it's, I guess I'm more sensitive and aware of people who are permanently bedridden or permanently wheelchair bound, because I know how frustrating it can be to be stuck. There's a lot of emotion that goes into that. There's a lot of challenge that goes into living those conditions. And there's things that, you know, most people say, oh, they're in a wheelchair. They don't have the use of their legs, but they don't realize that with paralysis of your legs, comes paralysis of some of your organs as well. And just all the other complications that come 
from not being able to move your legs. I feel like you mentioned earlier that you were accepting, that you accepted, that you've accepted that this is, this is your life. This is the experience you're going to have and that you have the faith to endure versus the faith to be healed. And you recognize this is a faith of endurance right here that you're in. How did you get to that point where you actually accepted it versus hoping for healing? Oh, that's a great question. You know, with those first couple of surgeries, there was the hope of healing because you're saying, I'm willing to take this big risk, do the surgery. It's going to solve the problem. And I'm young, I'll heal and we'll move on. But as surgery after surgery came of saying, you know what, there's permanent damage. There's nothing we can do. I think you go through a little bit of a sense of loss of what things will I no longer be able to do in my life? What am I missing out on? Um, what will change for my future? But the realization that being angry isn't going to do anything. Um, me being upset isn't going to make me walk more. Me being mad doesn't make my legs work or doesn't make the other muscles that are now paralyzed permanently function again. And so I think it just came with time. You know, this happened starting in 2013. So I've had nine years to deal with this process and to kind of heal a little bit from it. When you're in the midst of it, it is a trial. It's so hard and it feels like the end of your world. It feels really devastating to say, Hey, I might never walk again. I might never do this with my kids. And that's a hard image to accept. And for us as well, because of the paralysis, all of my pelvic floor muscles are paralyzed. So my organs were falling out every day. And we had to make the decision to have more children or to have surgery that would put my organs back inside my body. So I wasn't dealing with that constant nausea and pain. And that was a really, really hard decision to make. I was 27 years old and I had to say, yeah, I'm willing to have a hysterectomy so that I can be present for my two kids that I do have. We always wanted more that would, you know, that was the life goal. You know, what we had planned for ourselves is we're going to have more kids. We're going to have a family that kind of looks like this. And then to say, that's not the best plan and to have trust and faith. So that was probably the most emotionally difficult surgery to have because I was so young and to say, I'm taking away that choice, that ability forever to make that decision in this life because it's what's best for the two kids I already have. Um, and it, it allows me to function daily by making that choice. And so, you know, it, it's definitely taking time. And there are some days where it's so frustrating that things don't work. And you just want to have a good day. And you wish you could say, I'm going to set my health problems aside and I'm just going to have a great day and I'll pick them up tomorrow. But they follow you around every single moment. And there is never a break. There's never a time where you can say, I don't have to worry about this issue as much. It's always going to follow you around. And just accepting that that's now a new companion in your life. So definitely time has helped with that process of recognizing. And I think as perspective changes and in the moment, it feels like the worst trial that anybody's had to go through. And then you realize, you know, a lot of people have it worse. A lot of people with my condition never walk. They never have children. They never get to go explore the world and do the things that you love doing. And so replacing the, what have I lost with the blessings and the gratitude really, really changed a lot. Just changing the perspective to gratitude instead. Of course, you're, you're a normal person. So I imagine that you experienced tremendous anger and frustration and, and irritability in this process. I don't know. Maybe not. But you mentioned that you're like, anger doesn't do me any good. It doesn't heal me. So how did you, how did you navigate those normal emotions that come with the mourning or the grief that comes with the loss of opportunities that you previously had? I think a lot of it has to do with perspective. My suffering isn't brought on because of something somebody did to me. And so it's just life happened. And 
if this was all of our existence, it'd be devastating to say that if this was our only existence, but knowing that this is a trial that is temporary for this life, it's not going to be forever. My entire existence is not going to always be pain. If it was, I think it would be a lot harder to accept that. But recognizing that this is a short-term thing, yes, it's for this life and it feels like forever. It's not. And having that perspective just says, you know what, Heavenly Father has a different plan for me and it's okay. And to kind of trust in his plan. We always picture our lives and say, this is the plan I have for my life. We picture all the great things, but none of us ever sit down and say, what trials am I going to have? And we we don't picture our trials. We don't picture those hard things. And so when they kind come up, sometimes they blindside us a little bit of unexpectedly, how do we deal with this? But that helps a lot. And having a good relationship with my husband has been phenomenal in helping me. He's just been perfect through the whole process, supportive in every way possible. Even when he's got all of his stuff going on, you know, most people in med school kind of drop out of a lot of the other activities and engagement in life because school is so encompassing and so demanding. And he really made the decision to not be the talk of his class, to still do well, but to be there for his family and be present. And that made a big difference, just having him there for emotional, physical support all the time. And how has your marriage been blessed by your health challenges? And how tested? Immensely. You know, I would say my husband and I have a very unique relationship. We've been married for almost 13 years. We've never had a fight. We just, we made a decision when we were dating that that wasn't something we were going to do, that we would find a different way to work through any issues we had. And so as he has been there and seen all of the process and things that I've gone through, he's been the perfect support. (laughs) This one might make me teary. So when I was going into the first surgery, I was really nervous. There was a high probability I wouldn't walk again. And I'm sitting there and waiting and waiting. Um, The surgeon got called into an emergency case and my husband can tell I'm agitated. And so I said, Heather, you need to stand up for a minute. Okay, whatever. So I'm hooked up to all the IVs. You're sitting in the pre-op room waiting. And he starts to dance with me and then whispers in my ear, just in case. Um, He wanted to make sure that if that was the last time I walked, it would be something precious that I could remember and to lift me up. And so um, just being thoughtful for me in that way, it has been such a strength. He's never once complained. He's been there every moment. Any need I have, he will sacrifice whatever it takes to be there. And he's taught our kids that. You know, my two-year-old at the time, he didn't know, he, he knew mom before all this. And then all of a sudden mom couldn't be there. Mom couldn't be present. And my youngest son never knew anything different, but they see him serve me every day. They see him go out of his way to do things, to bless me, to help our family, to help through the constant pain and the struggles that that brings sometimes. He's like, you know what? Mom just needs help today. It's a day that we're all there. And so it's not only strengthened our relationship with each other, our appreciation for each other, but it strengthened our kids. And, you know, being in these positions, very vulnerable, where you can't take a shower for yourself because you can't bend, you can't scrub, you know, doing anything. It, it makes you extremely vulnerable to your spouse and you know, what in those moments of frustration, it would be easy to attack those vulnerabilities, but never once did he do that. And it's just a decision that we had made. And so that's, that's been a huge strength to our marriage to say, you know what, these have been challenging things, but it's never challenged our relationship with each other. It's just said, okay, we have new things to deal with. And with my husband being in medicine, it's easy for him to say, you know, I, I saw a patient today and their life's a lot harder than ours. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have compassion for me. He definitely has that. But to recognize that um, it could be a lot worse, you know, and there's there's always those perspectives in there. And 
as we've learned, you know, going through this process of medical school and all of the medical knowledge, he's been such a phenomenal help say, oh, actually, I know what she needs. I know it's going to work for her body. And a lot of the times he'll come in and talk to the doctors or nurses and say, actually, that method isn't going to work for her because of this issue or that issue. And he knows me not only as a husband, but as a patient in that sense. And so he can provide for me the best quality care that I need in a situation and say, no, this is what she needs. So it's really been a great blessing, his medical education. Um, He's a DO instead of an MD, which means that he does everything that an MD does, but he also learns the chiropractic side of things. And so he does a lot of chiropractic work for me and helping me um, to adjust because there's a lot of issues with the spine. So it's overall been a phenomenal strength and blessing to our lives. And, you know, that's one of those things that you look through and say, I have gratitude for these trials because it's brought us closer together. And it's given us these experiences of strength together that You know, we feel like we've learned healthy ways to deal with challenges and troubles together and not reflect our frustration and anger onto the other person, but to learn how to deal with it together. And I think that's what, you know, we're all trying to achieve and we all make mistakes and we all fail, but we're trying to become one and really unite together in our efforts and in our goals. And a lot of our dreams, a lot of the things we envision for our life have had to change because of those. And instead of saying, well, this is what I always wanted and now I can't have it. And looking at it in bitterness, we say, we're going to find new dreams together. We're going to create new dreams together. And that's okay to let go of some of those dreams that we had before and to create something new. So you mentioned how you deal with your frustrations differently. You learned how to deal with your frustrations because you still experience them. So how have you, what do you guys do that's different than the average person? Because I don't feel like you're the average people. So I'm curious, how do you, like, how do you, when you are feeling like, oh, I'm turning this towards my spouse instead of because I'm just internally sad or frustrated, what have you figured out there? I think sometimes it's just take a minute to stop and think. So if you're feeling frustrated, maybe you need to go take a few minutes to yourself and assess and say, why am I frustrated? Am I really frustrated at them or am I frustrated in the situation? And then for them to have the grace, to give you a little bit of grace in that and patience and say, okay, they need a minute to calm down. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about it when they're prepared and saying, you know what, I recognize that I was putting some of my frustration out towards you. And that's not really what I was trying to do, but being very careful not to say something in anger. I think that you know, if we lash out in anger, it's that much easier the next time and the next time and the next time. And so really learning to have that self-control saying, I'm not going to lash out or say something when I'm angry to calm down until I can approach this from a little bit more of a rational situation instead of an angry situation. But it takes two, you know, you can't have just one person be willing to do that. It takes grace and patience from both to say, wow, they're really frustrated. Give them a moment. Let's calm down. And then let's face it when we both know that this is something we can address without saying something we're going to regret. Because every time you lose that control, it's that much easier to lose control the next time and the next time. And then it creates this pattern of lashing out and saying the harshest things you can to your spouse because you feel hurt as opposed to processing the hurt and saying, okay, it's really not directed at you. Or maybe I'm feeling upset because of a situation that we found ourselves in or something we did, but really what's at the root of it. And let's let's try and make this better because I don't want my experiences and time with you to be frustrated and damaged that way, you know? And so it's, it's constantly working on it and constantly being aware, little self-checks 
of your own progress and being aware of that and being willing to talk through those things and having those vulnerabilities with each other. And I think because we've had years of vulnerability in those moments and not picked on them, it makes it easier to not even think that way. It just, it changes your thinking over time, but it does take time and effort from both parties to work. Oftentimes, I think we have expectations for how somebody should behave towards us or how we sometimes project our expectations on other people. How have you avoided that when you were in a position where you couldn't do things for yourself? Oh, well, um, (laughs) I think that that's kind of something that is a day by day process. You know, other people could look at us and say, wow, she's lazy. He does everything for her and she sits there. I don't have a physical outward disability that people can see and say, yep, she definitely has a problem. It's sometimes easier when we see people that have those outward disabilities to say, okay, we'll give them a pass because you can see something's obviously not right. I have over two feet of scars, but it's all covered by clothing, you know, so it's not something that people see. I've had times where I felt judged or frustrated with other people's expectations, but I think that part of going through this process has taught me to not worry so much about what other people think, but it's okay. I know if I know I'm doing the best I can and I'm comfortable with who I am, then it doesn't really matter if somebody else thinks negatively or you just don't run into as many frustrations. And Robert's been great with helping find solutions to things that might be frustrating. So a situation where I feel frustrated because I can't do something the right way. Well, let's find a solution. Let's make something a little bit better so that this is easier for you to deal with. And then, you know, it becomes part of the way your life functions from that point onward. I have, this is more information, but I have a paralyzed bladder. It doesn't function at all. So I have to catheterize every day. That can be really alarming and scary for some people. And some situations, it's very, very inconvenient, but you learn to deal with it. And it's part of your life now. So I don't look at it as this dreaded thing that I did when it first happened because I've learned to deal with it. Do I like having to deal with that problem? Absolutely not. I would love for my body to function again. And there are days where you're just tired and you don't want to have to get out your medical supplies and deal with the issues, but it's just part of the life that I now live. And so learning to accept that things are going to happen and I'm not going to like them and that's okay. And we move on and really ultimately what's the most important things. And it's our relationships with each other, with our savior, with our families. Um, And at the end of the day, I'm going to live the best version of myself I can and hope that other people can be gracious enough. And sometimes they will be, sometimes they won't. And it's okay. I don't expect people to understand my situation, but I also am more sensitive of other people in situations. I can tell when people are going through something that maybe somebody else doesn't because I live in that world of constantly fighting each day just to function and being okay with not accomplishing all the things you want to. There's a lot of that process of acceptance of who you are, of what your conditions are, what your limitations are, where it's okay to push a little and where you have to just be patient and not try to push. It's a continual battle because it's not the same every day. You know, your kids have been watching your you know, Robert and you and how you treat each other and how he serves you. And and I know you also serve him, right? It's different, right? Things look different. But I think in what ways have your kids benefited from watching you too? My kids are very tenderhearted. My oldest um, at school every year, his teachers tell me, you know, he's the kid that he notices the first kid in pain. He notices when somebody's sad. He notices when I'm frustrated as a teacher or I need help. And he's right there and says, hey, do you need help with this? It looks like you're, and he just jumps in and helps. And so I think 
that process of being aware of others and their needs has been a huge blessing to the kids. You know, when one of my kids is sick, the other runs and gets them a blanket and a pillow and reads a book to them. And they just recognize that there's little things you can do to bring somebody comfort. And I'm hoping that it shapes them into being caring, good fathers one day, you know, and being people who are aware of the needs of others and just that you jump in and you serve. And it's not that big of a deal. And it's not that hard to serve that people appreciate it when you recognize there's a need. And so they've become much more aware of that. And I mean, they're still boys, they're still kids and they have their moments where they don't notice anything, but overall they have very caring, compassionate spirits because they know what it's like to have a parent who can't do everything they need to. They've grown up a lot and they take care of a lot of things independently because some days I just can't do it for them. And so I think we've very much pushed them to learn how to take care of themselves or to be independent. We're there for them as much as we can, but um, to teach them skills to take care of themselves as much as possible, because then it helps others. And I always tell them, you know, the more you help me, the more energy I have to play, to do those fun things we want to do. And so they've just learned that that's part of life. You just pitch in, you just help. In what ways do you think that your children have skills at their age that maybe other children don't have? What are some of the things that you've taught them to be independent in because they've, their circumstances have required it of them? Um, you know, physically, they're, they're 8 and 10 now, so they're quite capable for themselves, you know, doing their own laundry, making their own meals, doing those types of things. Um, so I pushed for a lot of those things when they were younger, just so that it could relieve those burdens. Bending down sometimes can be difficult for me. So they know, oh, I just take care of all these things. You know, they don't leave clothes on the floor. They don't ever have a mess in their bedroom. Their bedrooms are pristine all the time because I had to teach them from a young age to do those things. So they're very clean, which kids generally aren't. And sometimes I laugh because we'll have other kids over and I think, wow, where did all this mess come from all over the floor? That's normal. That's totally normal. Um, But my kids are very particular. They don't make messes on the floor. They sweep, they wipe down the tables. They're just, they're very tidy because that helps me to be in a better situation. Um, And it takes a lot of time and practice when they're little, but they knew nothing else. And so they don't see it as a burden of, oh man, I have to go clean my room or I have to do dishes after dinner, put them all away. That's just what you do. So they're not even aware of it being a chore or responsibility. It's just, that's life. Um, And so I think probably the tidiness helps a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Props. Props to them. They sound amazing. And clearly you've done a great job of being able to teach them what you can so that they can be as capable as possible. And also that it's not a big deal. I love how you said that it's not something that this is just normal. This is our normal, right? This is what we do. I think that's really remarkable. What an advantage they will have in the future. And also right now, I'm sure clearly the teachers notice, right? <laughs> so... And I also wanted to talk about the impact of prayer. Can you share how you've seen the miraculous power of prayer in your situation and in your life? Uh, That's a great one. And it happens often. I've had so many experiences with prayer, with priesthood blessings and the power of those that they can change our lives. Through a lot of my early surgeries, I had five in the first year. There was often this feeling of loneliness. I remember right before we moved, we had a woman in my ward. She came up to me. She said, I had promptings that you needed help. And I chose not to come. Hope you're okay. It was like, oh, okay. Wow. 
And then I moved, we moved to a new state. We did two years of medical school in Missouri and then his third and fourth year in Utah. We moved to Utah and I had that happen two more times. I had a prompting, you needed help and I didn't come. I hope you're okay. And just this feeling of Heavenly Father, I'm asking for help. I need help. And people don't come when I need the help. And, you know, it taught me to never reject those promptings because somebody's desperate on the other side. And I know what it's like to feel that and to say, well, why am I not worthy to have help when I desperately need it? You ask somebody, but they didn't come. And to have those moments um, is really challenging, you know, but it happens all the time. How many of us have thought it's not that big of a deal? We kind of ignore a prompting that may come. And so my final surgery, we were in residency and my husband worked in Queens in New York and we lived out on Long Island and I was facing another spinal surgery and it was a very intense, again, surgery, months of recovery. And I remember just shaking and trembling um, in the office when I was told that this is what we needed to do to keep me walking because I was slowly losing the ability again. And just because I knew a, the pain that was coming, but also those feelings of being alone and you know, my mother-in-law was phenomenal and she helped and she was there, but still just feeling like I was going through this alone, that nobody understood the trials and as busy as medical school was, residency was way worse. You know, he was in training to be a general surgeon. He was gone all the time. You know, the kids usually saw him one day a week for a couple hours. It was just really, really busy time. And so going into that, I was so nervous and I just, I went through the surgery and afterwards, as always, was in a lot of pain. And I remember crying out to Heavenly Father in prayer and just asking for help and um, having very tender experiences of him speaking back to me and telling me that I choose to take this from you this time. This time you will walk for nothing. And he promised to help me in any way that I needed this time and that he chose to take upon himself that suffering for me. And so many experiences that time where something was going wrong after surgery. And then this just feeling of peace and calm of, I promised you it would be okay this time. I promised I would take this upon myself. So you don't have to, you've already experienced some and I choose to take this one. And, you know, sometimes something goes wrong and a complete stranger in the ward, again, we're fairly new, calls up and says, hey, I just thought you might need this today. And they don't know me, they don't know my circumstance. And they just offer these blessings to me. I remember one day I was just struggling and a woman said, by the way, I, I called up a babysitter. They're on their way. They're going to take your kids for the whole day. I paid them. Don't worry about it. And just to have these days where I couldn't physically do what needed to be done that day, having somebody show up, having people just bring in those little things along the way. And it made all the difference. And having that promise of, I choose to take this from you. And I promise it's going to be okay this time. It was such a comfort because um, every spinal surgery that you go through creates more and more damage. And to say, yeah, I'm willing to have this major surgery that's going to affect a different part of my spine and cause future problems, but that it's going to be okay, that this is the right choice for us and our family. Um, so that was a huge blessing and power of the priesthood blessings along the way. You know, those impacted the decisions we made. And they helped us to feel peace and comfort with those decisions, particularly in choosing to have a hysterectomy. You know, every family and couple wonders, how many children should I have? What should we be done? And we didn't want to be done at that point, um, but just receiving blessings that it was okay to not have any more. It was completely okay. And that Heavenly Father was pleased with our choices. No matter which choice we made, he was going to be pleased with the choice, but he left it in our hands and just that feeling of, he trusted us to make a good decision. He trusted us and um, not this feeling of 
uncertainty. There was just a lot of peace that came from those blessings, from prayers, you know, having your whole family pray for you and your little nieces and nephews praying for you and knowing that all these people are praying for you, even though they're not there physically, you may feel alone. You have a lot of support from people and just a lot of really tender, sweet experiences that come up throughout the process. Um, having just the perfect nurse that one day that did that one thing that made all the difference. You know, you have a lot of those kinds of experiences. And I think going through those extreme trials, we are often finding ourselves praying and we develop a closer relationship with Heavenly Father and you just see his hand in every moment. And, you know, as he promised in that last surgery that he would take the difficulties away, the pain didn't go away. The pain was still there, but it was now bearable because you knew it wasn't going to get worse. It was, yeah, something might go wrong, but it's still going to be okay. And just that feeling of peace of, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is. It still is going to be okay. It might be hard, but I didn't feel alone anymore in my suffering. And a lot of times I had felt alone that um, I just felt him walking beside me and taking it on saying, I, I'm right here with you and I'm choosing to be in this with you and experience this with you in this moment. You know, it just creates a lot of tenderness and appreciation for who he is and that he was willing to take that because he didn't have to. We often think of the atonement of him taking upon our sins and things like that, but he can also choose to take upon himself our trials and our infirmities and to walk with us and be there with us. And so that was a very sweet and tender gift that I felt like he gave to me that wasn't necessary, but he chose to just to help. I love that so much. I just thought of this song. I I don't serve in the primary on a normal week-to-week basis, but there's this song called Walk with Jesus or I Will Walk with Jesus. I don't know if you've heard this song. It's beautiful. It's this different song. It's not in the primary book, but it's beautiful. So I'm going to have to find it and send it to you because I feel like <laughs> what you were saying just so reminded me of that song, right? Of just how, you know, not everything was taken away, but it was like you could feel his presence, you know, there with you, which is amazing, right? That he is there. He does support us. He helps us to know we're going to be okay, ultimately. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you also mentioned this earlier. You mentioned how you guys have had to find new interests and new hobbies. So tell us about some of the things that you can do or that you guys have pivoted to do so that you can enjoy this beautiful earth. Well, our biggest sport activity is definitely scuba diving. It's become a passion for both of us. It's our favorite sport to do together. Our oldest son is now certified. He's old enough to dive with us. When I was in college, before all this happened, I studied abroad in Central America. And one of the opportunities on this trip was to go scuba diving. And I felt like, you know what? I'm going to a different part of the world. I'm experiencing new things. Let's try it. I'm not going to say no to new opportunities. And so I got my dive license when I was in college. And fell in love with it. Absolutely loved it. It was a great experience, but I didn't have an opportunity for about 10 years after that to really start diving again. When my in-laws started getting into diving and fell in love with it. My husband was graduating from medical school and they told us, you know what, we can either take you on a scuba diving trip to Hawaii for 10 days, or we can come to your med school graduation, your choice. And for us, that was an easy, well, who cares about the graduation? Let's go diving together. So my husband got his license and went diving and he just, he fell in love with it. He's always loved water sports. He grew up wakeboarding behind a boat. I grew up in the water. And so for us, that was just this perfect opportunity 
to be out there, to be in the water, to do something that didn't hurt. That's one of the most beautiful parts about diving for me is that part of my spine is not covered by bone. And so it's very tender and soft. And when you get in the water, you have this perfect buoyancy and it's just this freedom to be in the water, to explore a different part of the world that most people don't get to see. And you get to get down there with the fish and the animals and see them and just to appreciate their sheer size. Our first trip, we went on a night dive with manta rays. And so you're kneeling on the ocean floor and you have this 14 foot wide manta ray come down and swoop around inches from your head. And just to see these beautiful creations and to be blown away literally by the current that they create with their wings. And they're just these graceful, gentle giants to see those experiences and just the shock and wonder of a beautiful world. You get used to kind of the things you see on the surface and in your daily life and then go somewhere new and say, this is a totally different world. And to see millions of life forms that you've never seen before and just sit there and wonder, and you know, your first time diving in the water, everything looks amazing because you've never seen it before. You didn't know there was a creature that looked like that. And to be able to see it and experience it. Um, so that's been one of our big sports we do, an activity we do. It's great for me on my spine because it's no impact. So you can just get in the water, be there. And now to have our oldest son dive with us and to see him have the joy and excitement of being in the water and just the excitement of discovery. You know, that's that's what childhood is. And so in a way, it kind of gives you a little bit of that magic back of there's a new beautiful world to explore and to take care of and love and enjoy. I will link this in the show notes, but there is, they have a YouTube channel and there, I watched the Kazumel video and I was amazed by the footage. I was amazed by what was in that video. Incredible. I was totally taken back by the octopus the footage of the octopus. <laughs> I am obsessed with octopuses right now. And so I was really into that. But also you have dived with sharks as well. Oh, I love sharks. Yeah. Sharks are amazing. We actually go on dives just to see sharks. We did feeding of sharks in the Bahamas, not in cages. You just get in the water and they feed around you. In Cozumel, we dove with the whale sharks. Obviously, they're not scary to me. They don't have teeth. They are the biggest fish on the planet. They're, you know, 30 to 40 feet long. And so you're swimming next to this animal and you go from its mouth to its gills. And it's just this massive creature swimming alongside something like that in the ocean. Um, And just the freedom of being there with these gentle giants in the water was incredible. We're going to the Galapagos next year so we can dive with the hammerhead sharks in the schooling season in January. I just think that's a phenomenal experience to be there. We've been with tiger sharks. So we, we enjoy the sharks, not for the adrenaline, just to see such a beautiful, graceful animal in the water. And you think that you're a good swimmer. You think that you look graceful in the water and then you see a shark and go, ah, oh, never mind. I can't swim. I look like I'm a drowning, floundering fish here because you see this perfectly graceful animal just cruise right on by effortlessly. Wow, that's pretty dang cool. <laughs> Do you have a favorite sea animal besides sharks? Oh yeah, absolutely love rays, the manta rays, the eagle rays. Octopus are just fascinating creatures. You know, they can camouflage, they change shape, they're so intelligent. They're a lot of fun to swim with. Turtles are beautiful. I generally like the bigger sea animals just because you can sit there and interact with them, swimming with dolphins and watching them as they spin around you and they're trying to figure out who you are, what you're doing. And it's just fun to interact with a wild animal on their turf. And sometimes when you see those big sharks, you think, wow, I'm totally in their territory. 
whatever they want to do, they can do it right now. And you just, it gives you a lot of respect for them. You definitely learn when it's not safe to be with them. And sometimes accidents happen in life, but you know, poor sharks get a lot of bad rap (laughs) because they follow their natures. And a lot of people that get hurt, it's because of the conditions they were in. Not all the time, certainly, but you learn to appreciate just the beauty of these animals and being there with them. And that's, that's for me, what I love about diving is the discovery of these animals in their own environment and watching them in our Cozumel video, in the very beginning, there's this little clip of a small fish. It's only about three inches long, a damsel fish. That's the most aggressive fish I've ever met. It's tiny and it will attack you. So it was attacking our camera. So it kind of zooms in and out towards the camera because it's protecting its home. And so here I am, this giant compared to it. Oh yeah, it'll come and attack me. It'll attack any reef fish that comes up to it because it's protecting its home. And to get to experience that, um, when you snorkel, you get to kind of go down and see the fish. But when you dive, you get to just sit there and watch the animals in their own environment and learn their personalities. And it's a beautiful experience to see just the variety of animals and how they work together. It's not like a zoo. You know, you see an animal and they're usually sleeping or sitting there. You get to see them. But to interact with them in their own environment is just a different experience. Well, I have tried to scuba dive and my ears won't equalize. And so <laughs> that's a problem. I know. I'm like, oh, man, maybe I could do some training on getting my ears to equalize. Maybe I can do some training on that. Hearing your experience and seeing your videos makes me want to go dive. So it's really exciting to hear you talk oh. I hope for everybody that they can get to do that. I think, you know, as we learn to appreciate things, we take care of them. And there's a lot in our oceans to take care of and love um, and just be beautiful. So I guess I'm passionate, too, about trying to take care of the oceans, keep them beautiful. There's a quote from Jacques Cousteau, who is the famous oceanographer, really revolutionized scuba diving. And he had said, from birth, man carries the weight of gravity on his shoulders. He's bolted to the earth, but man has only to sink beneath the surface and he is free. And especially for me, with all of the health challenges I've had, being in the water is a freedom from that pain. And you do get to soar and you can be in any position you want. You can be upside down. You can be turned any way. And you still have that weightless experience and that freedom. Now, I can't lay on my back. I can't do a lot of things because there's constant pain on the surface. But to be below the surface gives me that different sense of freedom and a moment in a way to put aside those health problems for a little bit and just enjoy life. I know that you are a swimmer, so you swim to exercise. Is that correct? That's something that you can clearly do with your health circumstances. So any tips for the stragglers in the swimming pool like myself? (laughs) Oh, keep trying every day. You got to keep trying. You know, there's different tools and techniques, things you can use to help you improve your stroke in the water. On Long Island, where we lived, there were a lot of sailors and people that we knew out there. And they said the difference of how you swim is if you're a tugboat that just pushes through the water or your sailboat that curves and turns with the water. And so, you know, as you stretch out your stroke, you want to turn your whole body into your stroke. And that really cruises you through the water. You can buy different paddles and things for your hands that feel awkward unless you hit the water at the right angle. And then it kind of trains you to have a better stroke. Um, But they always say, you don't want to be a tugboat in the water. You want to be a sailboat and curve and turn with each stroke you do, Um, turn your whole body. And it makes a big difference in the water. All right, guys, there's hope for us. You're a like me. And what is something that you want the world or others to understand about this life that we are living? I think a big thing is that every day is a choice. Every moment is a choice that we get to make. Certainly there's things beyond our control, things we don't get a choice in, but we always get to choose how we react to that. And that's empowering. Um, 
to say, I'm not going to allow the circumstance to ruin me or to destroy me. It would have been easy to become depressed through a lot of the circumstances, a lot of things that happened. It would have been easy to complain or to be angry, but those things ultimately aren't going to bring us happiness. They're not going to make things better. And I think that um, saying, I'm going to take control of that. And some days it's little, your achievements are little that day. Maybe say today, I'm going to make my bed and that's my achievement for the day. Or today I'm going to get up, I'm going to shower. And that's my achievement for the day and being okay with that, but consciously choosing to succeed even in the small things. And for me, when I was in bed for those months, there's nothing to do. Well, what do you do to feel achievement? What do you feel do to make a choice consciously about your day? I went through a lot of books. I did a lot of conference talks. You know, I would say, Heavenly Father, please give me an experience. I get to see one person today. It's the nurse when they come in and then they're going to come around in the evening. That's the only person I'm going to say, please help me to have an interaction with them. That's positive for me or for them. That's a good experience that can be better for people. When we lived in Missouri, when a lot of this was happening, the hospital was an hour and 45 minutes from our home and Robert couldn't be there every day. So I often had days where I saw the nurse when they came in and when they left at night. And that was my only human interaction for days on end. I had one visitor while I was in the hospital for weeks and weeks. Just that isolation was hard, but consciously choosing to say, okay, what can I change today? Maybe it's my attitude. Maybe it's just um, my perspective. Maybe I'm going to try out to reach out to that nurse because they look tired and frustrated today. They don't really want to be here doing this. I certainly don't want them to be doing this, but that's what it is. And so taking control of the little choices in your life and making them positive. I think that there's always something we can learn from every single moment, but we have to allow the moments to change us. Sometimes we have to be willing to say what I wanted, what my goal was, isn't the right thing. And that's still something that, you know, we struggle with. I struggle with every day. Sometimes you have those moments, you just feel frustrated. You're tired. You don't want to deal with that. You wish that could go away, but it's not. And so consciously choosing that and just to recognize how much our savior really does love us how tenderly he is there for us if we choose to let him be. I think he wants to help us so much sometimes, but all we have to do is ask and forget to ask. And, you know, just asking for that peace, that comfort, that strength. And so there can be a lot of good moments. And sometimes there is suffering and you don't feel like something's coming out of it that's positive and that's okay too. It's okay to have those moments because you are more capable of helping and serving and loving others if you have those moments to have compassion, to have empathy. I remember receiving a particular priesthood blessing that said, one of the reasons you're going through this is so you can help others through their suffering. I'm allowing you to suffer so you can bless somebody else's life in the future. And I can't tell you how many times I've had experiences saying, that's why I have that happen. Now I understand because this person needs help and I can be there for them today. I can be that voice that sometimes I wish I'd had, or sometimes that voice that was there for me if somebody else's experiences that have changed me and helped me for the better. And so I think every opportunity, every moment of life can be a learning moment, but that's also a choice. It's a choice to choose to learn. It's a choice to say there's something positive and it's a choice to say, no, I'm not going to learn something from this experience. And sometimes it's really, really, really hard to find, okay, what's the positive? What can I learn in this experience? And sometimes those moments don't come until years later. You say, okay, this is what I can learn because I went through that, because I suffered that experience. And by no means do I feel that my experience is particularly unique. I think that everybody goes through just as hard of challenges every day. Um, Mine was a little bit more visible for a time, you know, but how many people suffer things that we're just unaware of that we don't see the quiet hurts in the heart that happen all the time. And so 
you know, just giving each other grace a little bit through these experiences and recognizing that, you know, I can be mad. I'm sitting here in traffic and that person cut me off, or I can choose to be happy and say, it doesn't matter and let the little things go. So I think a lot of these experiences have taught you to just let some of those little things go. They just don't matter. They just don't matter today and make the things that do matter the forefront with all of these things. Some days there's limited energy. There's limited ability to do things and you want to function. You want to do the best you can, but you just have limited energy. You have to choose which things are you going to put energy into. I cut out all unnecessary things in my life for a long time because there was no other option. It was just fighting for survival each day to function. And so in a way, my life is a lot more open and flexible and I can be there and I can be present for people because I'm not burdened down with excess a lot of the time. And sometimes that leaves me strumming my fingers. What are what am I going to do today that's good and useful and productive? And we've reached a new phase of our lives. My husband just graduated from residency last year. So he finally started, he calls it his first big boy job. <laughs> you know, it's been 13 years of education for him. And to finally be at a point where there's more balance in our lives and he's present and he's here for our kids and we get to really experience our lives together and grow together. You know, it leaves me in a different position too of not homeschooling and now having my kids back in school since COVID and to say, now what do I get to turn my attention, my energy, my life to and finding those new passions, finding new ways to care about people and to bless people's lives and to find things you're excited about. So I feel like I'm just beginning that new chapter of what's the next phase um, of possibility. And, you know, you have to always consider the health issues involved, but you learn to be flexible and you learn to make the things you're passionate about and love work regardless of what's physically holding you back sometimes. And how are you feeling today? How is your health? (laughs) It's been a couple of rough months, (laughs) but, um, since we moved to this new town, there's no swimming pool here. And so I use swimming as pain control. It helps a lot with the pain. And since there isn't a pool, then the pain has been significantly worse. You know, taking it day by day, Sundays are particularly difficult. I'm convinced whoever designed pews did it to create suffering in the souls of humankind. They're just not nice things to sit on. They're so painful for my spine. So generally Sundays are really rough days. All church furniture is just not comfortable to sit on. So, you know, you have your good days and your bad days and you move on and have to accept sometimes there's just not a whole lot going on that day. But, you know, we're in a position where we're hoping to eventually get a pool put in. It's an exercise pool. So it's a really small one that has a current in it just because that makes the world of difference for me physically. Being able to get in the water and swim every day. I used to do in New York, I was doing five miles a week and that was great. It felt phenomenal to be in the water, to swim, to achieve something. My body was in great physical condition, but now it's one of those times of being patient and waiting through the not so easy parts (laughs) so we can get something to work out again. When you talked about the decision that you would make every day to see those people, those nurses that were coming to see you, and the, the way you chose to show up and being intentional about that interaction. Uh, did you have any experiences with that where you were reassured of the importance of being intentional? Absolutely. Um, oh, so after my first surgery, I was, they put me on a spinal drain, which means that they were slowly taking off spinal fluid because they'd done a lot of work. There was a lot of damage. They'd have to graft in some synthetic tissues and they didn't want it to burst. So they were slowly taking off spinal fluid. And um, my first night, 
I had a nurse, it was his first day out of nursing school and he'd never done a spinal drain before and accidentally drained off way too much, which causes a headache that feels like your head's going to implode and a low pressure headache. It's incredibly painful and a horrible experience. And so this poor nurse, she gave me some morphine and for some people, morphine intensifies headaches, which is exactly what it did. So it didn't give me pain relief. It just caused the headache to intensify. And so as poor nurse, he felt really bad. I felt bad for him because he wasn't intentionally causing this bad experience, but it was horrendous. And so the next day I had a nurse, it took 12 hours to get me semi under pain control. It was so severe. And I just remember thanking her so much because it was the most excruciating pain I'd felt for 16 hours straight. And it just, there was no relief. And so she gave me this relief and I requested to have her again. And over the next two weeks, as I was in there, she was my nurse as often as she was at work. And I remember just praying, Heavenly Father, I need to have good experiences with these nurses and these people. They're working hard. And I got to know a lot about her and her own struggles. Um, She had a son with severe disabilities and who needed 24-7 nursing care. And her husband had left her because of her son's disability. He didn't want to deal with it, be present. And for me to be sitting here, she's like, yeah, my son just went through his 30th procedure, you know, and he's 17 just to have these experiences of, wow, other people's trials are hard and to be there and, you know, talk about our experiences with the gospel and Heavenly Father and just to kind of brighten up their day and to teach the gospel. And that's the last place I thought, hey, this is where I'm going to share the gospel is in a hospital bed with some strangers that I don't know. But to be able to share the gospel with her, when we'd go back to visit her, whenever we were in town, we'd go back and say hi to her. And she was just a great influence on my life of helping me in one of those worst moments when you just desperately need help. And she went above and beyond what she needed to in nursing. You're sitting in bed for two weeks, you get pretty stinky. You just do. So you usually get a sponge bath, which doesn't feel like much of a bath. And I remember just laying there and feeling my hair was gross. And so she would roll me back and forth, put tarps all over the bed and buckets and she'd dump buckets of hot water on me and she'd massage my hair and clean my hair and take time to braid my hair. You know, I, she'd spend two or three hours giving me a bath in bed. And that's not something she had to do. That was so far beyond what she needed to do. But to have these experiences where, again, you're very vulnerable with a stranger and for them to give you the care to, and dignity to make you feel like you're human again and that respect. And then to be able to reciprocate and say, Hey, here's something you're struggling with. I have this gospel. I have this knowledge in my life and it's blessed my life. And to be able to talk there and to be there to listen to her and her say, yeah, today was a really rough day and to recognize their struggles. Um, it's easy when we're suffering to not see other people suffering because it can be all consuming. And there are times when it consumes every amount of energy and effort you have just to deal with the pain and the suffering you're in. The beauty happens when you can see outside yourself into somebody else's suffering in those moments and say, hey, I recognize your suffering too. And to be there and say, I want to help you in your trials, whatever they may be. So she was a nurse in particular that has a very tender place in my heart because I got to know about her struggles and her life and her experiences. And she just talked to me, you know, doing two hours of a bath, talking about her life and her experiences and what was hard and what was happy and what was sad. And to be able to relate with her and say, If I'm negative, it's going to make her day harder because she has other patients. She has other things. But if I choose to be happy and positive, it makes it one less worry for her. And to be aware of their needs as human beings, the nurses, the doctors, and say they're doing the best they can. Being married to medicine also makes me a little more aware of that because I see how hard my husband works. You know, he sees the patient for 10 minutes and he spends hours working behind the scenes where they don't see that, you know. And so just to 
be intentional to show up and say, Heavenly Father, show me what somebody else is struggling through and recognize the gift that they're giving to me, even though it's a hard day for them. Wow. And is there anything that I missed asking that you wanted to say? Oh, I think you covered it pretty well. Just um, grateful to be here, grateful for the life that we get to have. And I'm not somebody who always likes to put my story out there, I guess. But my hope is that it can help somebody else who's having a hard time, having a hard day to reach out to make those differences. I think that's what the purpose is of your podcast is to reach out to touch people's lives and say, hey, there is positivity. There are good things. And we're really here to try and help each other in any way that we can. And we all have our valleys of sorrow. We all have our hard moments, but we can also have moments of joy that come if we turn to our Savior, if we rely on Him in those moments. It would be pretty bleak without Him. I don't know how I would get through those. A lot of time seeing other patients in the hospital or nurses, and they say, how do you deal with this when it's a permanent condition and it changes your life? And that that's all they see is this life, this moment, and it is hard and it's miserable and it seems unfair and not worth living for some. But to say this is a temporary condition and it's okay to be temporary. Even if it's the only known existence that I remember, it's the only one I know and I can't see what's to come. But just that perspective really makes all those things okay. But it'll be all right in the end and it makes you understand that Heavenly Father can make things right, even if they don't feel right in this life. And of course, again, my trial isn't because of somebody else harming me or somebody else doing something wrong. And so there's not bitterness and resentment that I have to get over or struggles of how do I deal with this person who really harmed me in life? It's just life happened to me and that's okay too. And is there any research that's being done on like sort of, I mean, are you aware of things that people are working on that could potentially help your condition? Yes. In New York, we felt very, prompted and guided there. That's where my husband did his residency. And I was having troubles again, where whenever I would sit for a few minutes, I would lose feeling in my legs. And one day I tried to stand up and I had no feeling in my leg at all for about eight hours. And that's very alarming. So I went into this doctor that I had connections with through our bishop. He worked at the hospital at the time. And he set me up with this doctor and his name was Dr. Latefi. And he met with me and said, you know, A lot of the care that we give for people with spina bifida, it's given to them in their pediatric years. So there's not really methods for adults that we do. We know what causes it. So there's not a whole lot going on that way. However, usually when you're having all these problems in your spine, they go through and they remove the scar tissue and then it comes back because they went in and caused more damage and it causes more scar tissue. And so you get two or three chances of getting the scar tissue removed before the damage just becomes permanent and the damage from the surgery is more. So he said, I am doing an old surgery that's an orthopedic surgery, but it's new for people with your condition. And it's where we go into a different portion of your spine and we actually take out vertebrae and make you shorter. That's what they did. They removed most of the vertebrae. So I'm an inch shorter than I used to be. And I have metal rods in my spine, but the advantage is that your spinal cord, when it's tethered to all that scar tissue is under extreme pressure. So anytime you bend or they're stretching the spine, it's causing paralysis. And it was at the point that even sitting was causing paralysis for me. And it's permanent damage. And so he said, well, if we go in there, we make you shorter, we're going to relieve some of that tension in your spine so you can bend without it causing damage. Because if I go in and remove the scar tissue, it's just going to grow back. So let's just make you shorter. They'd only done 12 cases in the United States by the time he had done mine. So in a sense, it was experimental because it wasn't a common procedure. However, that procedure has been done for other orthopedic issues for quite some time. But he was the only one really doing it in the United States. 
And so he and his partner have put in a lot of research, been doing papers and things to say, this is the better method of care for adults with this condition. Let's change the method of care. Um, and so when I moved here to Tennessee, I was talking to a neurosurgeon here just as a follow-up. And they said, oh yeah, we've heard about that. That's something that we're starting to look into doing as well. And so um, there is that. There's neural stimulators that they try and do to help with that. But I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of see what the future is. There's a, a doctor called Ludwig Gutmann, and he's the founder of the Paralympics. He was considered the founder of the Paralympics. He was this doctor. And it was during World War II era. And when patients would come to him, they're paralyzed. What they would do is put them in a coffin, fill it with sand, nail it shut, and ship them somewhere when they had a spinal cord injury, because that was the only way they needed to transport them. And this is in the 1940s. And then um, at the time, it was commonly believed that paralysis was deadly, that it would kill you. When in fact, it was the sepsis of you're sitting there, not moving, you're getting sores, the sores get infected and it kills you. And so he, he really advocated for it. You have to move, move these patients, them not having a purpose in life, them not doing anything in life. That's what's killing them. And so, you know, you think of how far we've come since the 1940s to now, I think there is hope for the future of things being different and diagnosis. And we know what causes spina bifida in a lot of ways. And so to say it, um, what I'm dealing with now is permanent and there's no solution. I don't necessarily feel that. I think medicine's always evolving. Um, and that not necessarily only specifically for my condition, but just in general with spinal cord injuries, there is research and there's effort being put into that of saying, how do we make these lives, um, their lives more mobile and functioning and able. And so, um, you know, who knows what may show up in 20 years that can change things for now. My condition is degenerative. And so the nerves slowly become more and more damaged. When I had my first detethering surgery, they told me maybe 10 to 15 years of walking was all I would have before the damage would be too great. So when I had this last procedure done four years ago, I may walk now for the rest of my life. We don't really know. And so we kind of take it day by day. You have regular follow-ups with doctors and MRIs every couple of years to make sure things aren't changing. And who knows what medicine can change so rapidly, relatively speaking, that maybe there's a future of no pain and walking. I don't really know, but I'm excited to find out. <laughs> yeah. And is there any organizations you recommend that we donate to in regards to spinal bifida? No. Generally speaking, spina bifida is caused by lack of folic acid in the mother when she's pregnant. Folic acid is incredibly cheap. It's very easy to get to. So it's more of just um, awareness of what causes some of those things. And when they tell you to take your prenatal vitamins, you should probably take your prenatal vitamins. That can help solve a lot of those issues. Spina bifida isn't as common as it was. It still does happen, definitely in poorer countries. But I also have an abnormal form. Most people with spina bifida, it's higher in their back. It's in their lumbar region of their back. And that affects all the nerves below it. So most of them just don't walk from birth. And there's not anything you can do to correct that. Nerve damage is often permanent. It's your nerves regrow at an incredibly slow rate. And they don't always regrow right if they do. But usually if you're paralyzed from birth, there's nothing that we know now that can change that. Just learning how to function with those disabilities. So that's not, there's not as much research or foundations that I guess I support in that way. It's more of just um, educating people on taking your vitamins. Our prophet told us to take them. So we better take our vitamins, right? Right, exactly. Both spiritually and physically, huh? Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Heather. You are truly 
Oh, thank you, woman. And I'm so incredibly excited for people to listen to this because this is an inspirational. This is, this is, this is like so inspirational. It was such a gift to hear your story. And uh, I'm so excited for the people who are going to listen to this because I know that they are going to be blessed by it. So, and thank you to Robert and to your beautiful two boys. We are so grateful for what you guys are doing and the, the difference that you make in the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tracy. I appreciate it.